News coming over the wire. European dictator arrests businessman. Wife starts a revolution. Across the Pacific, Democrats promise to bring a country back to basic decency. Truly a radical promise for the future. My name is Wasi Anju. And I'm Will Patterson. You're listening to Incoherent Political Spaghetti. I've always had this opinion. I never thought it was going to be democracy hinging on it. That feeling has always been there in any election, but it was way more pronounced in this one. You have freedom of speech. You're able to say whatever you want. But the one thing you're not allowed to do is really have access to the government, which which produces a very like weird population. Will and I have already spent a lot of time going back and forth about various things that have bothered us over the course of the week, unfortunately, even before we started recording. Now, I'm hoping to capture that same energy (laughs) that we had outside of the booth. Uh, Remains to be seen whether we'll be able to or not. We will try not to take any more shots at Bloomberg. Either because, you know, we might one day end up working there, but also... Watch it, Mike, you're on thin ice. (laughs) (laughs) Ah, Jesus. All right. Okay, so this episode is... We're primarily going to talk about the protests that have been happening in Belarus. And also we're going to talk about a little... Well, a lot about what has been happening in the U.S., particularly from the angle of uh, the Democratic National Convention. Now, I'll let Will explain the DNC before we jump on to Belarus, I think it'll flow in a more coherent way. So, Will, go ahead. Yeah, yeah. So, um, just to, to hit it off with the DNC, pretty self-explanatory if you're keeping an eye on it. Um, it's all it's the event where they always have a lot of uh, a lot of speakers. It's a very unique one this year because it's being held digitally, um, which is you know it's basically the same energy though, and. But this year, what makes it so special is, is now that we're officially saying it. Okay, Biden is is the pick. We've we've set it in stone. We already knew it was going to be that way. Um, and this is this has been the big bid for unity. So that's what we're going to talk about. We're going to talk about this multi day long uh, affair with all these different speakers and talk about what it means going forwards uh, in Trump era. How does a convention go off? What did we gain from the convention? And largely, I'm going to get into how what I think about political conventions altogether because, oh boy. <laughs> right. So I'll just briefly catch up on what's been happening in Belarus, and we'll talk more in detail once uh, we've dealt with the DNC stuff. Essentially, there's wide-scale protest against the sitting... I'm, I'm, I feel like the word president even isn't a good description, the really dictator. It's He's known as Europe's last dictator. Uh, been in power for, what, 26 years, I'm going to say, on end. And now there's magically, not magically, but a lot of protests going on against his rule. And uh, it's, a, it's a very fascinating sight to watch. If you've been looking at the pictures online, especially, it is very moving, just the extent to which it's going on. Um, but yeah, we'll talk more about that in detail later. So, Will, DNC the crap out of me. Um, okay, well, I would like to begin uh, by immediately apologizing for my <laughs> speculative, my, my intense critique of Kamala Harris, uh, while it remains so. Uh, the claim that Joe Biden had made a miscalculation uh, is clearly false. 
polling is mind blowing right now in terms of what's kind of the poll that is blowing my mind. Um, okay, it's ABC slash, and then I never know how to say it. it's like Ipsos, like I P S O S. Uh, so it's a real polling place. Uh, they did one that like, is our metric, real polling. A places. real polling oh, yeah. place. <laughs> I mean, you guys can Google it and, and tell me you disagree. Uh, but what's baffling me is that she is the of the four people that are presented, like Pence, Trump, Biden, Kamala. She's like by pretty wide margin the most likable, like according to this polling, which to me is just like the funniest thing ever. Just like this vice president, the last person to enter this arena is already there like magnificent. You're doing great. Um... And I think it's easy for her. So basically, she did take, she took to the stage, and as the New York Times editorial board would tell you, made history. <laughs> a very scary word for the New York Times to throw around. It feels like every other day somebody's making history nowadays. But um, such are the times. But it is, you know, once again, the New York Times. <laughs> <laughs> nah, I, I didn't even mean that laugh. Cut, strike that one from the record. Um, so I mean, Kamala Harris is essentially a hit. She takes the stage at the DNC. And launches into her um, critique of Trump. And, of course, it's scathing. And to act, even the New York Times being, like, brave. It's like, not really. It, Trump is, like, really the easiest target. Um, I could probably give, like, a speech that, you know, makes a little bit of history. Except, I mean, I don't know. Another person that looks like me talking <laughs> at the DNC. Not history. But the point is, she's getting a lot of praise for going after Trump. It was literally the DNC. The whole kind of point of this operation was to go after Trump and talk about Democrats. And, and you know, like this, this really speaks uh, to the idea I had about generally the DNC. Now I haven't gone through the full four day slew of videos, um, but essentially it is a parade that promises a return to the bare minimum, right? Like after what these past four years have especially been, the idea that you can come on stage and have a quote quote unquote a united democratic platform against Trump. Every word in that statement, by the way, speaks volumes. I mean, the idea that that is the bare minimum and that is like so sought after. It's not something I disagree with, but gosh, how far are we from actual ideals worth striving yeah. for? I would say that's the scariest takeaway from it is that the DNC this year has been like, we must stop Trump. And it's like, does anybody have any ideas? <laughs> like, that, it is kind of scary because anti-Trump is valid. Mm. Um, he's a good guy to be anti. But everyone just seems to be concerned that you're going to have unmotivated voters. You're going to have your, your young socialists. They're just worried that these people are going to splinter away. And it's, it's scary to watch people... The Democratic Party at times, especially at times like this, feels kind of like like a sinking boat that like we have a good chance. We're like trying to win a race. The other boat is on fire. Like that's it. Like it's both of us are clearly not doing well. And it's just weird that like Joe Biden's in the hole of the boat, like trying to plug holes, being like, we just can't sink. We just have to outlast the boat that's literally on fire right now. It doesn't feel we're trying to outlast something. We, Jesus. Um it feels like they're trying to outlast something more than they are trying to strive towards something which i think in the moment i think their strategy worked oh yeah i mean like short term wise it definitely makes sense but and you know this is also something that goes back to uh stuff we talked about last week 
the general democratic strategy has been to cast the widest possible net, particularly when it comes to visual takeaways, which is what Kamala's general uh, appeal would be. And I don't know the specifics of the polling process that uh, that poll you mentioned went through, but it is you, you need to be able to gauge the widest possible opinion in the easiest possible terms for you to have that level of projection, right? And I think, again, if you look at the lineup, Trump, Pence, Biden, old, white, really white, right? <laughs> and then, and then you have Kamala. So to see that visually is, I think, a very big reason for why polling can, you know, erratically define Kamala as that likable, just because she's that desperately needed breath of fresh air from a visual standpoint, right? Secondly, um, especially, uh, Jesus, especially with the analogy of boats, right? My God. I love boats. Terrible. Uh, I mean, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) My affinity for boats. (laughs) Oh, sorry, sorry. This is where we're drawing the line. (laughs) Yes, everything is fine until we talk about boats because I have thoughts on Dragon Boat Festival, which is like a... It was canceled this year. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Anyway, that's wearing off a bit topic. We'll circle back next week. We'll, get, we'll flesh out the dragon boat debates. <laughs> right, right. Anywho, so um, the again, since we're not really striving for anything, we're plugging the holes of the boat because we just need to outlast the one that's sinking. <sighs> this is the Democratic Party. This is the Democratic strategy that inevitably will still lead to the furthering of a lot of the grand scale problems that are actually pushing for this platform right now. Your race relations, voter suppression, the idea of income inequality, et cetera, all of these social and, uh, you know, all social inequalities and economic inequalities, they're systemic to the American system right now from years of neglect and years of piling up of bad policies, right? Even though there have been some, you know, good ones here and there, they're not long-term enough. They haven't been consistent enough to yield sustained benefits. And then especially to have the COVID crisis hit, which just, you know, tanks a lot of the economic achievements from the Obama era. Yes, the Obama era, not the Trump era, because like, you know, he's he's basically been taking credit for a lot of stuff that was started there. Um, and then to be also sitting on the uh, precipice of a of the next disaster that would happen as a result of this financial loss, which can be residential bubbles. Google what precipice means. Oh, okay. You do that. Um, yeah, I, I don't think the strategy of just filling in the holes is enough. And to me, what I'm concerned about is that if the Democrats do win by the fall, they're going to have the in near insurmountable task of paving the way forward for the country with a leadership that has to this point really only been concerned about surviving and sustaining the boat. And that is going to leave a sour taste in the mouth of voters who are desperately needing change right now, not just the idea of survival. I'm curious what then happens in the next election cycle. How will have the national psyche engineered itself against the Democrats, especially when the long-term strategy of these Democrats and the long-term critique against the Democrats has been the idea of an uninspiring, 
very government-broadened <laughs> mm-hmm. narrative, right? Does that narrative get stronger for years from now and lead to another pitfall in democratic leadership and in the voting process? It is potentially very chaotic while you're still having all of these economic and social, you know, problems boiling over. It's it's a it's a mess. We wanted to take the time to just sit down and talk to you, the listener. If you're enjoying what we do, consider reviewing us wherever you get your podcasts. You can also follow us on our social media like Facebook and Twitter. Links are in the description. Join our mailing list and you'll be the first to know when our next episode drops. I would say you, you were talking about uninspiring. That is to, okay. To watch like Bernie Sanders and AOC get up there and, and be like, we have to do this. We have an obligation to do this. That's where I begin to look at it and say, these candidates have serious beef with their fellow, uh, to their, with their fellow party members to the point, like, I would like to remind people, Bernie Sanders only became a Democrat when he had to essentially um because really he he was an independent before that so i i look at this and i'm like this is so strange that we have these party members that everyone you'll hear you'll hear any older uh, liberal american say like you know if bernie doesn't if bernie drives voters away he splits us it'll be his fault same same with AOC, same with these far leftists so this support this need to empower biden I think he's coming from a place of saving face. And the idea is that if 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 Bernie, if these actual, I'll just say, I'm not going to say far leftists. I'm going to say le- actual left-leaning people um, in the Democratic Party uh, were to say, no, comply, no, give us more, move further to our politics, which I think would anybody in a party would say is fair to say, I refuse to comply with the other parts of my party until we reach an agreement that is more suited for me. Or if this was another country, you would split and make a new party. Like that's what actual normal places do when you (laughs) disagree and you're in the same party. Um, But it's weird because it's like, it's like being like kind of like the party where we're struggling to progress or like being like the weird racist anti-immigrant like funhouse party, you know? Um, also, it's not, you know, calling it a racist is not, I would say, a really an opinion. I, yeah, I would just say is <laughs> a fact before anybody adds me. Mm. Um, so what I see is instantly, if, I, if I'm going to make a, a wide, you know, wide projection, a prediction into the future, I I can see, I mean, it's, it's shaping up that if the voting thing works out, which I know we're stretching out, we do need to talk about the voting thing, mm. um, which is a big part of the DNC. If we look at how this pans out... Uh, it looks like Biden and Kamala uh, will win. We said this with Hillary, so I'm not taking any hard stances. But it looks like uh, Kamala and Biden will win, and that'll lead us with a leave us with what will have to be a shattered Democratic Party, the most hollow victory ever. That'd be on. We used the last of our energy to keep the boat together, got across the finish line, sink instantly. Infighting begins. <laughs> I think we're gonna have four years to go. So where what are we gonna do with the party now? We're in charge. This party's in charge. Is it status quo as usual? Because mm. the party, I I have a difficult time imagining, I have a difficult time imagining uh, Biden winning this, and then winning four years down the line. Exactly. There's no when Obama won the first time. There was invigoration when he went up the second time. You know, with any president going for a second time, there will be doubts casted. I almost feel like Biden's walking into the Trump trap where he barely wins. 
uh, or didn't in this case, uh, with Trump's case. And then, and then you're just scrambling. How do I inspire people? I just don't think you can when you start so I mean, low. Biden has, uh, in it, I, I'm not sure if this would be his official stance, but he has at the very least said that he is a transitional president, right? Because he is trying. And in that vein, I can sort of, best case scenario, I can understand being the bridge between the need to wrest control away from Trump while also paving the way for the future leadership of the Democrats. It is a terrible ass idea that we are, that that is the choice that faces us, but it is unfortunately the most pragmatic way forward. Now, you mentioned the stuff about voter suppression, and I think this is actually this also leads in to a lot of the problems that we can talk about further. Um, the idea of polling and why you know even when Clinton uh, Hillary Clinton was projected to win by a lot of national polls, she was <laughs> leading the polls, etc. The experts, the pundits, they were all like, "Oh, she's going to win," etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Mm-hmm. The fundamental problem with a lot of the polling that happens is twofold. One is the idea that the polls necessarily mean that people are going to vote exactly like that, right? If you look into the sociological machinations of how a pollster's job is carried out, then you realize that a lot of people are not actually necessarily telling the truth about what their actual political intentions might be in any given Mm. moment. And this is especially more so in the uh, 2016 election because there were so many dividing lines between each candidate that people were flip-flopping left, right, and center uh, simply because of how they felt on a given day, right? That feeling has always been there in any election, but it was way more pronounced in this one, which is why any poll, and a lot of outlets admit that you really need to be looking at the polls that happen right around election time. That is the reason, because people are not going to have the same mindset up until then. The second thing, and this is where this election cycle is going to be even more important, is the idea of who and how many people have access to the proper voting methods, right? Mm-hmm. It was already a big issue last election cycle with, you know, um, the gerrymandering claims against the uh, against the Republicans of how they were redefining state lines to sort of, you know, favor their own election, electoral colleges, blah, blah, blah. Um, the fact that polling stations had long queues, etc. All of these things served to naturally dissuade the voting population from actually voting. Oh, and while we're at it, polling usually takes the president's, uh, sorry, polling usually takes the opinions of the voting population, not the people who are actually going to go and vote. The actual people who go and vote again, is something that you can't really predict because it's down to the individual person making that choice on the day to actually go and vote. So all of these things, and now with voter suppression now, with the mail-in ballots and everything, which I'll let you cover in more detail, <laughs> are getting are, are going to be, it's going to be so weird to watch that if, if the race is as close as it was back in 2016, if that same model repeats over here and then you have all of these things happening at the same time, holy hell, is it going to throw the numbers in any anyone's direction? I would say the, the talking about the mail-in ballots, um, which is to me, we have reached kind of like peak, like the peak conflict between um, like private versus public in terms in an American sense, like Americans are so privatized in so many aspects 
But it always has. I've always had a serious problem with the notion that we need to we need to get rid of the postal service. Look, it's not making this money. It's not doing this. And me and and I think a lot of like-minded people in the states have always said, well, we need something around. We can't put all of this in the hands of a private company. If I need something moved across the states, one of the most basic things ever. I, we need a government facility I can always rely on um, that has a flat rate. I've always had this opinion. I never thought it was going to be democracy hinging on it. But it kind of this is kind of that weird point where now we we get to see where it is really a climax of uh, private versus public. And of course, that comes down to Republicans versus Democrats, where Republicans have been already wanting to get rid of the Postal Service for years. Uh, not all, but, you know, generally, if you find somebody who's like, let's get rid of the thing. It's useless. They're probably more likely to be a Republican. And now that there's like political motivations, like that's it, we're gonna we're not gonna do the postal service anymore because uh, we're trying to um, do a coup, which is kind of fascinating to kind of have the president very blatantly get up and going, I'm going to try to seize power through the goofiest form of voter suppression. I'm gonna just make sure there isn't enough mailmen, which now it is it's really really weird. This is I never thought democracy would you know what I think deep down I did know democracy hinged on the mailmen. That's a part <laughs> of me always knew. It's just. It's fascinating that Republicans always wanted to get rid of this thing. It turned out to be one of the most important things amid COVID-19. And and now here we are. We're with this argument of a lot of Republicans saying, get rid of it. Just to, I guess just to put it in context, imagine being a uh, a, a poor, a poor American. Um, and these these are the kind of people that, that sometimes will end up picking up these opinions. Imagine being a poor American and just. Having suddenly now clinging on to this opinion of defund the post office, take a step back. It, it won't provide anything for that citizen. Except maybe get rid of their right to vote or if they're or get them increase their chance of going of getting COVID-19 by making them go to a crowded poll. This is just I guess I'm just thinking out loud at this point. I am. Uh, I just it, it just kills me that this is something we've debated for a long time before one of the, the one of the most important elections in contemporary American history arrived mm -hmm. and now it's going to hinge on it thanks for listening this far and supporting us we wanted to let you know that we're also working on a new series Voices of Journalism is going to be our new show where we explore the struggles of journalists in reporting modern news especially during the times of COVID-19 Subscribe to our mailing list or follow us on social media and be notified when this new series begins. I wanted to shift focus on to Belarus and what's mm -hmm. happening there, right? Because to me, I think that the the U.S. is on the brink of a Belarusian-style uh, authoritarian ship and maybe then also the protesting and like the rebellion that comes off the back of it. Now, traditionally, it is very, I, I think in the American imagination, the general average American imagination, it is hard to reconcile the idea of the mythical America, the land of the free, the home of the brave, and all of these things, with the reality that it has been going through, I would say maybe for the past 15 years, but more specifically these past you know, four, maybe to seven-ish years, where 
I honestly cannot remember what the very first Trump scandal was. And that is my point, where the idea of this president has reduced, has numbed us down in so many different ways to what it actually means to be the to be the self-proclaimed leader of the free world. And I I'm afraid, I'm genuinely afraid that this that this political reality is sitting at the doorstep of a very Belarusian style. Now in in Belarus, uh, Alexander Lukashenko, hailed as the last dictator of Europe, has in effect been in power for the past 26 years. He has violently, he has at times violently and more often than not just generally suppressed uh, the opposition throughout these times. There's never been a credible enough opposition to A, you know, stand up against him, but B, more importantly, wrest control away from this authoritarian regime. I have a funny quote I'm looking up right now from him about (laughs) how, how brazenly he does this. It is not to be... Not, not to you know indulge in dark humor, but it is almost comical, like watching a dictator twenty six years in, just kind of be like, yeah, you know, I, I'm a dictator. Who cares? Like, <laughs> and it's just like from the outside, we're like, oh, and well, even people inside are like, yeah, we know he acts like that. Like, it's, <laughs> it's just you forget. It's sorry. Continue. I'll, I'll let me. Look no, no. Up. I mean, you're you bring a very valid point. Imagine Trump. Imagine everything his cabinet has gone through. Imagine every turnover in his cabinet. Imagine all the scandals that are leaked, the people who are writing books, etc., on what it is like within the administration. And tell and can you tell me with a straight face that that is exactly not what is happening in Belarus and their administration, right? They're openly on the inside, like, yeah, this guy's like that, right? Secret Service in the U.S. is like, yeah, Trump's like that. This is- Intelligence agencies are like, yeah, we know this. The guy doesn't read his briefings, et cetera, yeah. et cetera, right? So your leadership is has for so long been closely resembling that, right? And now what what is happening in Belarus, triggered really by a, a random arrest of a businessman who critiqued Alexander uh, Lukashenko, and really his... His wife then got up and just, you know, claimed uh, to stand with the opposition. There were like a few, there are a few, you know, elements I'm missing out on here, a few different dominoes that fell into effect. But she has now become the face of the Belarusian revolution here. I'm going to call it a revolution now. Yeah, Uh, let's get there. Yeah. (laughs) And you got the Wasi seal of approval. (laughs) It's happening. Watch out, Lukashenko. (laughs) So this is... This is one of the two realities to me that sit, that sits in front of the uh, the U.S. population. Either we go hard on an authoritarian style of leadership that we really already have, and those tensions keep on piling up and piling up until they randomly get triggered. And it's not—I wouldn't say the Belarusian one is completely random. I mean hell, you know, 26 years, obviously, but also the fact of COVID and the general frustrations that that boils over when people have been trapped in their houses all this time. All of these things have worked together to create the spark that is that that protest and that revolution. And I am hopeful that it results in something meaningful. But again, even if it does, it will have the insurmountable task of rebuilding and the optics and the problems that come with it. I think, I think the opposition is going to have the benefit that it is trying to rebuild a broken country so it can't really expect or people can't really expect it to have everything right off the bat. 
but it is almost always going to be a better alternative than the authoritarian style that you've had until now. The U.S., on the other hand, hasn't got into <laughs> that specific economic and social turmoil, but is exhibiting those same types of political faults. And therefore, when the Democrats, if they do come in, their insurmountable task, their near insurmountable task of having to rebuild everything is going to be levied with valid criticisms of not going far enough, simply because people are not that deprived of their, their social and their economic cycles as you know people in that European place are. I I would say I did find the quote. I want I want to share it with you guys um, because it sounds like it's a Trump quote. Uh, just as in it's comically oppressive. Uh, they aren't even worth repressing, Lukashenko said of his opponents. To be honest, we have been soft so far. I can tell you honestly, we have always restrained the law enforcement. It's just, it's almost, I'm so used to dictators that kind of lie. You know, like, like kings and stuff, they're like, look, this is the best it's going to get. I'm making sure my peace of prosperity, my people have prosperity. Uh, this guy is more like, yeah, nah, I mean, like, I'm in charge. I've been light with the law enforcement. I've been light with the corruption, you know. And you were talking about that connection. So I wanted to share that because it kind of kills me because it does expose that sort of comic, like comical authoritarianism. Um, and then on the same note, we, we talk about how I think this is a unique situation that the U.S. is going for and what how we did end up with Minneapolis and Portland and all these things and my hometown. Um, Nebraska. No, yeah. That's not a town. Football. That's. I mean, Omaha. basically, shout out to Omaha, Nebraska. <laughs> Best stakes or something. Um, they. Uh, but I mean, Americans have a ton of freedom to do what they want in terms of like expression. Americans do have an insane amount of freedom. It's kind of the situation that happened in Hong Kong. I would I would venture to say where in Hong Kong, um, people had. Uh, well, what was the way I, I saw it written? Um, uh, freedom without liberty. Like, it's... Um, you're allowed to say a lot of things. You have freedom of speech. Largely, you did in Hong Kong. This is all past tense. Uh, <laughs> but you have you have freedom of speech. You're able to say whatever you want. But the one thing you're not allowed to do is really have access to the government, which, which produces a very, like, weird population. Like, you're used to getting... You're used to having influence on things. And when people tell you... You can say things. You can influence general opinion. You just can't access the body that actually makes the rules. And the U.S. is, weirdly enough, with this is where it's different from Belarus, where people have been very kind of bluntly told, no, you can't say that. You're not allowed to, you're not allowed to talk and you don't have access. I think people have an easier time sitting in that mindset. When Americans are being told they're on path to have the highest seat of power, ignore their own their own input into that and americans are used to just having a say and being able to express themselves and whatever it is what results in what people go oh my god they're not going to listen to me i have no choice but to go downtown and destroy the place i think that's how you get these pressure cooker like it's how hong kong was a pressure cooker people are like i what do i do i'm expressing myself i'm just going to keep expressing myself more and more until you give me access to the government. Um, that's why I think places where they just, they crack down on the expression first, it's a lot harder to boil into the, I'm freaking out, I'm freaking out, I'm so mad. 
we're barreling towards that with with the U.S. And it's like it's just weird because it's like we're just all kind of passengers. The the globe. That's the that's kind of the most terrifying thing with the U.S. is the globe is all passengers on the election train. Like we all just are. I'm an American, so I have a little bit of an input, but plenty of non-Americans. Most of the people that are having to deal with this aren't Americans, and they're just witnessing. Yeah, it's like climate change. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm not one of the 90 oil executives that's actively. Actively out there pumping up the the people who pay the biggest price are the ones who had little or nothing to do with it. Yeah, and people who benefit the most, me, a dragon boat dealer. Reserve yours today. The world is flooding. <laughs> um, you wouldn't be a boat dealer, would you? You'd be a boat salesman. I, I don't know what the semantics of boat boat economy looks if like. It, if you don't, if it's not in a little bag, it's not a dealer. So if I can get the boat <laughs> in a bag. <laughs> That's a joke, right? I, I could make you a paper boat and throw it in a bag. Do I get dealer status? Sounds like a John Green novel. Paper boats and bag. Oh, Paper Towns. That's where it's coming from. Okay, wait. I'm off track. Uh, yeah, I don't know. I mean, this is just weird. I'm just, like, expressing general frustrations. Like, nothing. I'm not really. I'm not synthesizing anything super profound. I am just marveling at the same train wreck we're all watching. And this is funny. Lukashenko is kind of running into the same thing that everyone's running in everywhere. Like, what kind of came out, just reading this, He, the, his last election um, from outside observers was deemed, like, pretty fair. He actually did have, like, a lot of support. That's the weird thing about dictators is, like, a lot of times they do just, like, maintain a lot of support. Um, once again, when you, when you crack Magic. down on expression and things just seem generally all right... And, you know, your neighbor who keeps talking, this is so unfair. You don't want him in charge. I can see how people just go, come on, guys. The the dictator's fine. Um, versus the, the reason that I see him being unseated, though, is that, that that whole, guys, come on, it's fine. Please stop making a scene. Doesn't work in a COVID-struck economy. I mean, everywhere, everywhere is suffering. And we come back, we come back to that theme of inspiration. When a dictator's only promise was... Uh, was stability and it was never inspiration when you run out of the stability you can't really give a rousing speech when that's never been your forte you can't be a dictator that goes out of the front and goes, people we will survive this together you just gotta get that man like he's, 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 he's yeah. not helping us at all it's like, so, yeah like when all, a lot of these frustrations are piled onto each other right I think yeah. one influences the other and that and that is the bar it it needs to be at for people to actually be willing to come out against that level of dictatorial re- regime and be like, you know what, fuck you. No, get the fuck out. Um, Sick be- of it. Yeah, because then it's no longer just a challenge to your, uh, you know, unseen and implicit uh, beliefs and beliefs in rights, your political rights, etc. It is something very tangible, i.e. I'm not able to make rent. I am not able to have food. I am not able to, you know, like the, the very microtransactions that I make on a daily basis just to survive in a place like that are now being denied to me. And to then also be faced with that frustration of, oh, I cannot actually actively talk about it and hold the power structure that is responsible for it to account. And then on a third layer, the fact that it has historically been like that for 26 years, enough is fucking enough. Suddenly makes you go, wait a second. I think I've been like really pissed off for a really long time and I just needed somebody to like kind of give me a good shake. 
needed yeah. the economy to go, hey, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to beat the shit out of you now. <laughs> that was enough to make me go, okay, I'm going to go outside. I'm going to start yelling shit. God, I do love where protests come. I love the concept. Not to get not to get very broad in philosophy, uh, you do know, get, not to dip into too much philosophy, but I do love that like a protest. People always like pitch them as such like a formal thing. Like now that I've witnessed a protest, it is funny that a bunch of people show up and be like we don't really have a plan. We're uh, we're just all so upset that we didn't want to sit at home anymore, and it's kind of fun to be in a group of people that are like angry, angry. <laughs> like it's just nice. You feel validated. You feel like you're doing... When other people start to get uneasy, you're like, yeah, you should also be angry. You want to join my big group of angry? Like, <laughs> it it kills me that it's such a universal. Like, it's not... That it is a... It has always been a multicultural thing to just get a group. No matter where you are in the world, get in a group, be angry together, and just be like, what should we do with this? And, you know, it goes a bunch of different directions. There's protests. I remember when I was a kid being at a, a protest in a... I like being a protest in America where it's just like you're walking down the street, you know, like, and then you go home at the end. And then versus like protests in other places where you go outside and you're like, I don't really know. Maybe we're just going to like hang around, maybe chant for two hours or like, you know, enough people show up. Maybe the cops show up will like kind of start rioting. I I guess I just marveled the fact that whether it's Belarus, uh, Hong Kong or... As, as we look towards an exciting election day, possibly DC, we will see you soon. You've been listening to Incoherent Political Spaghetti, a podcast that looks at global political issues and the challenges to journalists in reporting them. I'm Wasi Ancho, and I was joined by Will Patterson, and we'll be back next week.